0: You know we celebrate our freedom this weekend, and here at the end of the book of Galatians, Paul kind of puts this statement before us. He says, "If we've been set free, if we have real freedom, will we use our freedom to love one another? You know, what will we use our freedom for? Because when you've been set free, when you have freedom, you can do a lot of things with freedom. You can make a lot of choices. You can make a lot of decisions." It's it's in our hands now if we've been set free. And so we have to choose what will we use our freedom for in this life. I love how in that song, um, the Imagine Dragons song that we just heard, um, there's a line that says, love is our only hope. Why, though? Why is love our only hope? I think it's because love will bear incredible sacrifice. Love is going to do hard things for the ones that they love. I want to tell you about the coolest dentist in the entire world, okay? I've got a slide for him. His name is Benjamin Solomon, okay? Benjamin Solomon is the only dentist to ever receive the Medal of Honor, all right? He's the only dentist, and doesn't he look like a dentist, (laughs) look at that. That is the face of a dentist right there. Now, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Benjamin Solomon. Uh, Benjamin Solomon tried to join the Army and Canadian Armies in 1937, but both armies rejected him. So he started a dental office in uh, California. He actually was the dentist of some upcoming actors there in Hollywood. And then in 1940, he was drafted into the U.S. Infantry as a private, and he received machine gun training. That sounds cool. In 1942, the U.S. Army promoted Solomon to the Dental Corps. He tried to stay with his unit, but he couldn't. They just made him, uh, they, they graduated him up into the Dental Corps, and he was sent to the Marianas Islands in the Pacific. And then on July 7th, 1944, almost 78 years to go today, he single-handedly protected his, his, his medical tent and, and uh, fended off 98 attacking soldiers. I have, and I have some notes from this article. Um, Roy sent this to me this week, and I just thought this was in- incredible to hear about what it was that, that, that Benjamin Solomon did to, to get to that medal of armor. And so uh, he was on July 7, 1941. Solomon saw his first attacker while working on a patient. The Japanese man emerged from the bush and began bayonetting wounded troops lined up for treatment. So Solomon grabbed a rifle and shot the man and then put that down and returned back to work on his patient. But then two more attackers rushed through the front. Solomon clubbed them both, then bayoneted one and shot the other before more soldiers started climbing in under the tent walls. Uh, The dentist shot one, knifed one, bayoneted a third, and headbutted a fourth. My goodness. Seeing that the situation was desperate and that the hospital would be lost, he ordered the medics to assist the wounded in a withdrawal while he provided cover. Contact with Solomon was lost for 15 hours as the American force conducted a withdrawal and then slowly took the territory back. And when they found Solomon, he was laying on a machine gun, dead, with 76 bayonet and bullet wounds. Dozens of enemy dead were arrayed before him, and a blood trail showed where he had repositioned the gun multiple times, almost certainly while fatally wounded, to continue recovering the retreat." Now, he was initially rejected for the Medal of Honor um, because, uh, just in the rules, they initially didn't allow medical personnel to receive the Medal of Honor. But it wasn't until a group of men in 2002 kept petitioning, kept petitioning, kept petitioning and collected facts and details about the story. And so in 2002, in the Rose Garden, President George Bush presented the Medal of Honor to uh, Dr. Robert West who had kind of organized the efforts to get this uh, Benjamin Solomon, the Medal of Honor. And uh, the medal is now on display at the University of Southern California, where he got his medical degree at. That's crazy to think about that. And I don't share that story. I don't want you to think I share that to to glorify violence at all, right? Because you can read that, and we can get caught up in the violent nature of it, and the toughness, and the brute You know, like, like we could get caught up in that, and that's kind of what makes the story cool. But I don't know that we want to glorify that. What, what I think we want to glorify or lift up is the sacrificial nature that Solomon displayed and the love he had for his others, his staff, his medics, and the patients. And just he knew he could do what it took to save those lives. Now, my guess is that Solomon didn't just all of a sudden become brave enough to make the choices that he did that day. My guess is he didn't just all of nowhere just all of a sudden have the bravery and courage to do that. He might have. But my guess is that Solomon operated by a principle that had been around, that has been around a long time, and that we find in Galatians 6 7. In Galatians 6 7, we read this Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That's the NIV. There's another translation. Same verse, just a little different wording. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. We reap what we sow in this life. We harvest what we plant in this life. And my guess is that to make the kind of sacrifice that Marty Solomon made on July 7, 1944, he had already lived an entire life of sacrifice, of making decisions against his own personal pleasure and comfort and for the well-being of others. My guess is to harvest a life that ended in a medal of honor, he had to sow a life of giving himself away for the sake Of others. That's the kind of love I call liberating love. Liberating love sets the world free because it changes things, because it is fueled with a sacrificial nature. And when we see liberating love or experience liberating love, it leaves a mark on us. We're not gonna forget that story of Solomon. And there's people that you've had in your life, there's people that I've had in my life who have lived a life of sowing and reaping that kind of liberating love. It's the kind of love of single parents who may not have the support of a spouse as they try to raise their kids, parents who are giving up so much of themselves to see their kids grow up in a loving home. It's the kind of love we see in so many young people who are willing to give up their time to support disadvantaged people groups or to take to the streets for social causes. It's the kind of love we see in so many um, middle-aged laborers, men and women just stuck in jobs that don't really set them free, but provide an income and support for their family and community, and they just keep grinding. They keep sacrificing personal freedom to provide that love and for their support for their family and neighbors. Liberating love is the kind of love of an aging spouse who gives up the relationship that they had in their youth and the freedom of being young so that they can die to themselves and care for their partner. That is sacrificial love. That is liberating love. And it's that kind of love that the Apostle Paul is describing here at the end of Galatians. When we get to Galatians 5, 25, um, we're going to read until about 6, 7, or 8. But Paul's getting to the end of this letter of Galatians. And now, um, if you haven't been with us, if you're joining us for the first time today, um, but if you've been with us this whole series, I just kind of want to sum up what's been going on. We've been in this whole series called Free. And we've been calling it Free Because this whole book of Galatians, this letter, really, that the Apostle Paul wrote to some Christ followers, some Jesus followers in this little community of Galatia, which uh, Roy shared last week, and I learned, is modern-day Turkey. So Paul's just writing this letter to these Christ followers, and the sum, the bottom line of this letter is, religiousness doesn't set us free. A relationship with Jesus sets us free. Religiousness doesn't set us free. A relationship with Jesus sets us free. See, following Jesus doesn't mean trying harder to live by a better moral code. That's what so many of us do, including myself, and I think that's where things go wrong, especially when we start trying to follow Jesus. It's so easy in the beginning, but then you you realize you get 20 years into it, and you realize you've been doing this the whole time. It's so easy to think that Christianity or following Jesus is about being better, about trying harder to be better. And what I think of that is, is I think of that as a gospel of self-improvement. I think so often just because of the world we grow up in. I mean, we're pretty, we grow up in a pretty moral society. And so already you and I, we have a set of values and we're, we feel like we're pretty good people. We try to do good by others. We try to raise our kids. So already we kind of have this ingrained, inset um, morality to us. And it's so easy to apply that and think that a relationship with Jesus, uh, to be a Christian means trying harder to do better and live by a higher moral code. But Paul and Jesus and this whole letter has been trying to convince us that we don't really have what it takes to earn good favor with God. Even the good things we do in life are normally for internally motivated reasons to feel better about ourselves, not really to serve God, but just to feel like we're a good person. And so not even our best deeds can ever earn God's favor. We can never achieve it. We can only receive it. Following Jesus is realizing and admitting no matter how hard I try, I can never be good enough to earn God's favor. But because Jesus already had all of God's favor, and because Jesus died in my place, I don't have to prove that I'm good enough to be loved. Now I just receive God's favor. Jesus didn't get God's favor so that I could have it. Jesus exemplified a sacrificial freeing liberating love and if we are going to follow him we have to follow him into that same kind of life of liberating love that's what paul has been arguing over the course of this letter and so he's getting to the end and it's kind of like some final instructions and he kind of rattles off four, five, six different things to say, like now that we realize that being a Christ follower isn't about trying hard, it's not about achieving love, it's about receiving love. This is what it looks like to live a life of love. And so it's here in Galatians 5, 25 through 6, 8, where Paul shows us what kinds of seeds we have to sow in our life if we want to harvest a love that sets people free. And so the first thing um, that we're going to look at is sowing obedience. I'm going to read this. um, We're going to put it up on the screen here. I'm going to read. This is verse 525. And we're just going to go through again. What do we need to sow if we want to harvest liberating love in our life? And the first thing is sowing obedience. Now, Paul says, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Not some of the parts, but every part of our lives. There's another way to say this, that is, um, since we are living by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And as soon as I heard that, I read it in that translation, keep in step with, I thought of a marching band. Marching bands have to work to keep in step, and marching bands have a drum major, right? That's what they're called, I think, or they keep everybody in step. And I thought about our Show Creek music team up here and all the work that they do and all the work that they put in. See, they have a music director, and the director tells everybody what to do, what part to play. And so real freedom actually comes not through acting on impulses of freedom, but on obedience, following a director, following a maestro or an orchestra director. Because uh, Jared, who played the drums, he has the freedom at any time to play whatever he wants to play. He could play whatever he wanted to play and Rachel and Melissa and Amy. They have the freedom to sing whatever they want to sing at any time. But if they choose their own individual personal freedom over obedience to the director, then it's not worth showing up here on a Sunday morning. (laughs) It's just a bunch of noise. And that's what it's like To try and live in a relationship with God. We value our personal freedom so much. And and we want to celebrate that. And we need to celebrate the personal freedoms that we have this Independence Day. Because we have so many freedoms in this world that other people just don't. So we need to go out and, and celebrate and meet with our family and friends and celebrate individual freedom. However, we also have to realize that what comes with the territory of celebrating individual freedom is that it makes obedience to an authority hard. But real freedom is found through obedience. See, I'm free to put, uh, what could I put in my car's gas tank that wouldn't work? Many things other than gas. I could put sand in there. I'm free to do that. I'm free to put sugar in my gas tank. I'm free to just dump oil in my gas tank. I could put uh, watermelon juice in my gas tank. I could do all those things, but my car's not going to run very well, and my car's really not free at that point. So, one of the things that we just have to wrestle with over the inquir- entirety of our lives is that we may be free to do whatever we want, but we're not designed to do whatever we want that we have a creator, Father God in heaven that created humanity with a design. And just because we feel we're free to act on any impulse we want doesn't mean we're actually free in the long run and that it's better for us. And so Paul starting out this letter is that if you really want to live and sow and reap sacrificial love, the first step you really need to take is understanding that real freedom, real love is going to start with obedience Understanding that God is my creator, I am the creation, and I am only free when I live by his design for me. The next seed we need to sow is we need to be sowing humility. Now, Paul says this in Galatians 5, 26. Paul says, let us not become conceited or uh, or provoke one another or be jealous of one another, if you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. I love how he says that at the end. If you think, <laughs> let me read it again. If, if you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. I imagine, I, sometimes I imagine Paul is like Michael Scott from The Office, just saying these like one-liners, like you're not that important. See, so you and I were naturally always looking for ways to feel good about ourselves. We're always looking for ways to feel good about ourselves, to feel puffed up. And because we're always looking to feel good about ourselves, we tend to compare ourselves to others. It's just natural, it's the sea we swim in. My high school 20-year reunion was last weekend, guys. 20-year reunion was last weekend, and there's nothing like a 20-year high school reunion to give you a nice dose of humility. I mean, I had hair, guys, (laughs) and they pointed that out when I showed up. (laughs) I go to my high school reunion, I show up, uh, I'm wearing a hat, and we're looking at somebody had auctioned off. See, in my high school, I went to a small high school. Uh, I went to Plattsburgh, and so one of the things that I think is unique and cool, I had 60 people in my graduating class, Uh, 10 of us showed up to the reunion, thanks, guys, for being there. and one of the things that's cool is uh, senior photos. You know the individual pictures you take? So there's enough space in a big poster to put all of our individuals' photos up there. And so you can see every graduating class. And so lining the halls of our high school is every graduating class. Like I can go back and see my cousins that went to high school in Plattsburgh because that's how things are, okay? And so I can see my cousins. And so, um, but what happened was they were running out of space. <laughs> so they auctioned them off. They were running out of space, so they gave him the boot. They gave me the boot. They auctioned it off. And so one of my friends, he had, his dad had purchased a bunch of them. I guess he bought like a whole set, maybe like from 2000 to 2010. He just got the, the box set right there. Uh, but you can go back and look at what everybody looked like in high school. And for the most part, age isn't kind, is it? <laughs> Kids aren't kind, for that matter, <laughs> and all the wrinkles we have. You know, one of the things that was said... I forget how we got talking about it, but somebody mentioned something about who hated, you know, it was like a bunch of high school banter, right? Like who didn't like who or whatever, and somebody says, what, so-and-so didn't like Justin, he was, Tally? So I went by my last name, Tally. He was like the nicest guy in school. And I thought about that. And, and I thought, that's not bad, <laughs> right? That's not bad to be the nicest, to be a nice guy. But I think now, 20 years later, as I reflect on that, it's like, is that what I want to be known as? Do I want to be known as the, the nicest guy, or, or do I want to be known as somebody who changed a life? You know, somebody who made such an impact. Do I want to be known, what, what I would have rather been known as the kid that invited this kid to sit at the lunch table, or who stuck up for somebody else, right? Like, it's, it's just a different thing. And I think about the things that I care about now, the things that mean the most to me. Um, If you go back and look at some of the words in that verse, uh, when it talks about being conceited, again, uh, another way to talk about that is, is we are hungry for empty glory. That's another way to say that verse, is there's something in us that is hungry for empty glory. And it's that idea of we hunger for things that don't last. We hunger for temporary things, that this world isn't the only world. There's a world that comes after this world. There's a world that's going to swallow up this world. And so what do I want to be concerned about? What do I want the energy of my life to be about? Does my life represent, if I looked at the the entirety of my life, would it show a hunger for empty glory? Or for a glory that would last? And do I live that out in humility because I consider others more important than myself? Do I want to be known as nice? Or do I want to be known that I changed the direction of another person's life? And did I practice humility by making myself available to others? I think that's such a small small thing, but a huge thing just a tiny change of direction, because you think about when somebody needs something from you, right? Especially if it's a kid, <laughs> or if, you got, if you're a parent like me, or somebody just bothers, you know, like, hey, can you help me? Hey, can you just... And that internal, that internal, oh, I don't want to. <laughs> oh, that's going to throw off the rest of my day. Oh, if I pick up that call, right? There's no... Who knows how the rest of my day's going to go? And I think when that happens, when you, when you hear that, when you feel that, what we should also be hearing is that little, that little voice in the back of our head saying, or that right in our ear saying, you're not that important. <laughs> you can give up some time. You can make yourself available to this person. Because if we're going to not just be nice, but change people's lives, we're going to have to make ourselves be available and sow humility. The next thing that Paul talks about, the next seed that Paul wants us to sow, is this idea. It's kind of abstract, but I want to explain it. This idea of sowing a vision of restoration, sowing restoration. And so in verses 6, 1 through 2, Paul says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly, which really just means spiritual, you, you who are on a spiritual journey, should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path and be careful not to fall on the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. See, the law of Christ, Paul's using that as a term, but what he's really referring back to is what I think we had up on that slide earlier at the end of that video. The law of Christ, that goes back to when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment. He says, you know, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul's linking those two thoughts together. He's saying, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, then you must share and carry the burdens of those around you. And that word help that we find in that sentence What it really means is to completely and thoroughly repair, to fit, to frame, to mend, and to make perfectly joined together. If you think about like something that's been busted, you ever splintered a piece of wood, you know, like a frame or something, and you're like, there's no way this is going back together. (laughs) There's no way I'm going to put every little fiber of this thing together. It doesn't matter how much I put glue on it. doesn't matter how much I clamp it down. This thing is never going to be fit back together. It's never going to be the same. Paul's challenging us to think differently. He's challenging us to live in a world, to see the world through the eyes of Jesus, through the love of Jesus, who could fix everything anything and to have a vision of restoration a vision of people in our lives that may be a mess because if you're going to make yourself available if you're going to be humble if you're going to sow humility and make yourself available to others in life then you're going to get into the messiness of it it's going to be nasty it's going to be dirty it's not going to feel good there's going to be splinters but if we don't move into that life those messy lives, we don't have the chance to participate in helping people, helping them fit perfectly together with Jesus. I think right now, I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking about J.D. Donahoe. Some of you guys know J.D., right? Just give me a nod if you guys know J.D. J.D. Donahoe has been serving middle school boys for over 15 years at Schill (laughs) Creek. And you want to think about carrying burdens and getting into the messiness and, being, and trying to have a vision for such raw energy. Because that's how I would describe middle school boys for the most part. Just raw energy. Bouncing off the walls, trying to have a conversation about who Jesus is and how Jesus fits into their life. Man, that takes a vision of, of restoration, a vision of who these young 11, 12, 13 14-year-old boys could be and to be with them long enough to help direct their path and carry the burdens that they come in with. And some of those burdens are really heavy. And I think we know that, that kids go through tough stuff. And somebody's got to be there for them so that they can vent, they can share, they can feel like they are known. And so for us, Paul says you've got to carry other burdens, the burdens of other people. And I think the only thing that gives us strength enough to carry the burden of somebody else is to have a vision of having them restored and joined and fit perfectly into the vision that Jesus has for them and the life that they could live. So we must sow a vision of restoration. The next thing we must sow to harvest liberating love is we have to sow contentedness. And so Paul says this in verses 4 and in verses 5. The Apostle Paul says, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. When is the last time you felt pure contentment? Have you ever thought about that? Like, when's the last time you felt just like you didn't need anything? I've been thinking about, like, how addicted to entertainment we are how addicted to entertainment I am. A couple nights ago, um, we took my, my uh, nine-year-old out for his birthday party. We went to his birthday party, and it was, it was about what you expect a nine-year-old birthday party to be with eight kids. It was exhausting. We went to a, a main event. Over in Zona Rosa, because no way are we going to let this party of young kids into our house, all right? So we loaded up two cars, because that's how many cars it took. We loaded up two cars, and we took Cortland and his friends, and we let Everett invite one of his friends to come too. you know. And so we went, and we went to main event over in Zona Rosa, and they went through their little play cards as fast as they possibly could swipe, you know, get tokens and play games and did laser tag. And I don't blame Cortland. Cortland was a little mad. I know, and Normally, he's not a diva. Uh, but Cortland was really mad because we signed up to play the laser tag game. And for whatever reason, whatever happened, it ended up being five on two. Five on two for laser tag. And so they got destroyed. I mean, absolutely destroyed. And he was mad. He took it like a champ, but they played laser tag. And then we went to Freddy's uh, we went to the freddy's there over there we had dinner afterwards and we brought the cupcakes in and we did party and it was fun it was a really good time i was really tired though my wife was really tired um then we got home we had to take kids back home we got home late um and then i knew it was going to rain this weekend and it's like we have his actual family birthday party that's coming up today um we're inviting family over to our house so it's like i gotta you know you know those things you gotta do you just, i gotta do one more thing i gotta do one more thing right so i was like man i need to mow the front yard because the family's coming over and if i don't mow it now you know i'm, I'm gonna speak sunday i'm not gonna have to speak. you get where like, I'm going with this right There's always these things to do. And so finally I look up and it's like 9.15 and I haven't had dinner yet and everybody else is, you know, kind of off. The kids are finally in bed and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I'm just going to sit down and have, and eat some food. <laughs> I'm just going to sit down and eat. And I sat there and ate and I instinctively, I sat my food out in front of me, but instinctively, um, just naturally really, you know what do I do? I try and eat and I try and take out my phone. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why can't I just sit here and eat. So I put my phone away, right? But then there was a book sitting there. I was like, well, maybe I'll read my book while I eat. I was like, what am I? And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I so addicted? Or why do I feel these urges to like do something or spend time, like being on a phone or reading a book or, you know, like, it's like, why can't I just sit and and be still? And just know everything's going to be okay. You know? I think about the world we live in. We just live in a world that really is a whirlwind of discontent. Always telling us we need to buy something, right? Because you can be scrolling through your Instagram feed, or your feed, whatever feed you're on. And what ends up happening, right, is there's now shopping offers, right? And they've targeted you. They know. Like, I, you get, I get in my feed a bunch of fishing stuff and t- typical dad gear, you know? So it's like, there it is. Oh, that does look cool, right? Like, we're always in this world that is really sowing a discontent in our lives telling us we're not happy unless we get this. And, and, and unless we fight back, you know, I think we have to sew slow. We have to sew slow. We have to create pockets of time in our life where we just sit or stand or chill and just maybe, yeah, maybe put our hands in our pockets and maybe just sit there and say, I don't need to do anything right now. I can, I, can, I can take off my watch that dings me when I need to and put my phone on vib- you know, silence. I can put it on airplane mode and just kill all comms to that guy. And maybe I could just sit and listen. <laughs> maybe I can step outdoors. Maybe there's some birds. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some nature going on. Man, it's really healthy just to listen to nature, actually. It's really healthy just to be connected to the world around you, not the fake world, you know, that we get wrapped up in. So so maybe we need to sow slow with our lives so that we we can find out what it means to be okay without doing anything, paying attention to our own work, getting the satisfaction of a job well done and not comparing ourselves, saying, I've done enough today. I don't have to do anything more to feel good about myself. I don't have to feel, do any more to make somebody feel good about me and to make them think I did enough and I did my job. I can stop. The world's not going to stop spinning because I'm not the one supplying the energy to keep it moving. That's God's job, not mine. So we need to sow and work at contentedness um, lastly, here, kind of verse six, um, we need to sow generosity. Liberating love is going to take generous people. Paul says in verse six, those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. What he's saying is we are called to give back to those who have given of themselves to do us, and that is what creates a real generous, um, sacrificially giving community. And I and I love that anybody can be a teacher. Like, don't get stuck in this format of this this kind of thing going on. I just want you to think about the people you live with, the people in your neighborhoods, the people at work that add value to your life, that teach you things, that make your life better. And he says good things. He's not just talking about giving money and and, and donating, because that's not what he's he's talking about. Think about the people who have added value to your life, how can you add value to their life? Yeah, maybe that's going to be some kind of financial thing. But maybe that's just giving my time to them. Maybe that's helping them out with a project. Maybe that's serving them in some way. We have this little pantry box where we live. It's right at the corner um, of where we live, a kind of a busy intersection in a part of town. It's a little pantry box, and you can put things in there, you know, oatmeal, mac and cheese, and on the side. I don't know who came up with the color scheme, and I have an issue with it. It's white with purple and green lettering. I don't know how that goes together. White with purple and green lettering. It's all white. But on this side of this box, it says, take what you need and leave what you have, or what you can. Take what you need and leave what you can. And I wonder if that's just kind of a motto for life. You know? Do we live a life of only taking what we need and leaving what we can? or do we live a life of accumulation? (laughs) A life that's like our attics or our junk drawers, you know, where we don't throw things out, right? Everybody has that junk drawer, and mine paid off, actually. I kept this little two-prong outlet thing that went to a three-prong, and I kept it for years never throwing it out, and then finally I needed it one day. But 99.9% of the time, that's not the way the junk drawer works, 99% of the time, your junk drawer you don't need. 99% of the items in it. You can get rid of it. You can be done with it. But we live these lives, I think, that are based in accumulation. We live these lives that come out of a fear of like scarcity, like a scarcity mindset. Where it's like, well, I might need that someday, so I need to hold on to it. I might need that, so I need to hold on to it. And it's really a life of self-protection, where I'm going to look out for myself first and make sure I keep everything that's going to take care of me. And then I'll just give over, you know, the, the, the leftovers. I think Paul is saying that if we want to live a life um, of liberating love, we, we have to give away, or get away from sowing a life of accumulation because we can't take it with us. We have to sow generosity, and that's what, harvest, that's what harvests a generous community. And, you know, for the most part, I think we get this whole reaping and sowing thing. I don't think this is an intellectual problem for us. I think this is more of a heart problem for us. And this is what Paul says in uh, Galatians 6, 7 through 8. He, we get back to this verse that we started off with. This says, um, Paul's kind of wrapping up here a little bit. He says, again, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. And then this is the problem. What we're dealing with now isn't a head problem, it's a heart problem. Why we don't live a life of liberating love isn't because we don't know, you know, we know what generosity means, we know what it means to be kind, but what we really have going on is a heart problem. This is what he says about it in verse 8. He says, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. What we grow in the garden of our life really comes down to who we are trying to please with our life. What our gardens look like, the fruit that we're harvesting, really comes down to who we are trying to please, either ourselves or God. That's kind of how we can live life, either trying to please ourselves or trying to please God. Even if we are a stereotypical people pleaser and we live to make others happy, we found that that's still really just to please ourselves. That's just to make ourselves feel happy because we want the affirmation and acceptance of other people. And so when we boil it down and what Paul's saying is, is like, here, here's what's going on. It's, it's, it's who are you trying to satisfy? Who are you trying to please? Are you trying to please yourself are you trying to please God? I think the story of our lives and the story of the Bible really can be summed up as a tale of two gardens. We have the Garden of Eden and we have the Garden of Gethsemane. We think about these two gardens that we find in the Bible. We have where where the story of the Bible kind of starts, this idea of a Garden of Eden is this kind of perfect place where God creates humanity, and God lives in a perfect relationship with these two humans. He lives in a perfect relationship with humanity, and God provides everything. There is no scarcity mindset. It's just this perfect, trusting relationship where these, uh, these, this humanity is free from shame, this humanity is free from doubt, this humanity is free from fear. They're given everything they need and they're perfectly taken care of by their father whom they walk with in the garden every day. But then what's interesting is this snake, this creature, this being pops up and starts having this conversation with Eve. Instead of, instead of trusting God, she starts having a conversation with a very non-God creature, And then she looked at this tree, and in Genesis 3, 6, and I found the phrasing really important and really interesting here. In Genesis 3, 6, it says this, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree and that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Because the fruit was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And in that first garden, humanity made a choice to please its own eye. All humanity had to do was say, I respect you, Father. Freedom is found in obedience. I'm not going to eat of this tree. But humanity saw that this fruit was pleasing to the eye, and so they decided to please themselves and indulge in this, and then death and decay entered the world. Yet we have this other garden that we find in Matthew 26, 36. And I'm just going to read it right here. In Matthew 26, 36, we have another garden. And this is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus went and prayed on the night he was betrayed. He had made enough enemies that there was going to be a group that were going to kill him and lead to his crucifixion. And Jesus knows this is coming. And so on Jesus' last night of freedom, Jesus went with his disciples to an olive grove, a garden called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then he went up a little further and bowed his head to and faced to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. See, in the Garden of Eden, that humanity wants to, to take care of itself and wants to do its own self-will. And that, I, that self-will enters humanity and brings death but Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is facing death and chooses God's will. And that ends up bringing us life. See, I think what we have to look at in our lives is we have to ask this question of which garden are we trying to create? Which garden do we try to live out of in our lives? Do we live out of a Garden of Eden with this self-mindset, this I want to please myself, I want to do what I want to do, Or do we live out of a garden of Gethsemane that says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. When we look at Eden, what is Eden filled with? What does it lead to? It's self-satisfaction. It's saying, I want to do what is pleasing to me. Eden is filled with self-idolization. That idea of, um, I sit on the throne chair of my life. I am the authority of my life. I am the king and the ruler of my life. And what I say goes... No one else sits on it. That idea of self protection, a scarcity mindset. I need to protect my resources. I need to take care of me. And that idea of self sufficiency is I have everything. I don't need anybody else. I can take care of me. And what we see happening, what we saw happen, and what we live out of is it leads to harvesting that death and decay. But if we choose to follow Jesus into a Garden of Gethsemane where what we want to do is to please the Father, not ourselves, even if that path leads through suffering and pain, choosing to please the Father more than we want to please ourselves, what we find is humility, saying, I'm not that important, God. <laughs> do with me what you want. We have rightly directed worship, saying, I don't have the right to sit on the throne chair of my life. I am a created being. I am not the creator. Jesus, you're the only one that has the authority and right to sit on the throne chair of my life, so I'm going to worship you. We have other-centeredness. Jesus at Gethsemane, dying for the sake of others, knowing that he had to die so that we could live. And instead of self-sufficiency, we have father-dependence. Again, saying... Being okay with saying, I don't have the resources to do this, God. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know what uh, provision there's going to be for me if I go this way. I don't know what's going to happen in my job if I choose honesty. I don't know what's going to happen in this relationship if I do this. But I'm not going to be the one to supply the resources for it. I'm going to depend on you, Father, to give me what I need. And so if we follow that path, that path through Gethsemane, What we find is resurrection in the garden of eden um, it's pleasing to self but it is a life that ends in death in the garden of gethsemane there's a life that pleases the father and it is a death that ends in life so i think there's a couple ways we can respond to this as we think about what kind of life do we want to live do we want to live the eden life or do we want to live the Gethsemane life? Do we want to please ourselves, or do we want to please God? That's the way to to get to the liberating love, to setting people free, and there's a couple ways we can respond to that. The first is just naming someone. As you think about others, as you think of others being more important than ourselves, who is it? Who's that name? Who's that person that you're thinking of that needs freedom, that is chained in some way? who is it that you need to fight for? Who needs liberating love? And that might just be naming them, keeping them on your mind, keeping them on your heart this week. And the second way to respond to this is just committing to an act of sacrificial liberating love, making yourself available maybe. Maybe you just know that's something you have to do. Maybe that's a commitment of saying, this week when somebody asks me for help or somebody interrupts my day, I'll say yes instead of, no, nah, I really don't have time. Or maybe that's by serving. Again, putting aside the tasks that we want to get done so that we can be available and help somebody with something that they might need. Or maybe that's being generous with the resources. You know, again, the bound bag revolution, that's a great way to, to live a life of generosity or to think about, okay, what, what money can my money go to that's going to actually help real families and real people? That's, a, that's an act of generosity, an act of sacrificial, liberating love. So as we close today, and as we kind of come up the series, there's there's one last verse, and it's Galatians 6:14, where Paul he's writing his letter, and it's really interesting. If if you read and you go look in that scripture, you look at Galatians 6. Uh, if you read it, there'll just be these big uppercase all caps letters, and it's Paul saying, "I'm writing this with my own hand. I'm not having anybody else scribe this. It's like this is how important things are to me. It's kind of like when you get a text with all caps that started a really long time ago, just all caps." And he says this in Galatians 6, 14, he says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he means is, is, may I never be filled up with. May I never boast. May I never get pride. May I never get my identity. May I never get my sense of worth from anything other than the love and identity and value of what Jesus did for me on the cross. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, we really need you. We need you to help us live a life of sacrificial love. It's super hard. It's hard carrying the burdens of other people. It's hard being humble. It's hard putting others in front of ourselves. It's hard um, loving people. Father, we just want to say thank you first of all that that Jesus chose the path he did in Gethsemane where he chose to please you and say your will be done instead of doing what was pleasing to himself because we would be up a creek without a paddle if it weren't for Jesus saying, okay God, I don't want to do this but I know that this kind of costly love will pay off in the end. And to your name, Christ, we pray. Amen.